150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Z. Liu, Associate Professor of History and International Studies in the Department of History at the University of Richmond. Dr. Liu is the author of Heritage Politics, Shudi Castle and Okinawa's Incorporation into Modern Japan, 1879 to 2000 published by Lexington Books in 2014, as well as more recently, Singapore, Commemoration and Reconciliation, in Anniversary Politics, Commemorations of World War II in the Asia-Pacific in 2015, published by Lexington Books in 2018. Dr. Liu, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Your research has looked at the history of the Ryukyus and the incorporation of Okinawa during the Meiji period. And this is certainly a topic that deserves much more attention, not only in Japanese history, but in this podcast as well. So I was I was hoping you might be able to start us off by by talking about what was the Meiji state's position vis-a-vis Okinawa and what, what were some of the policies that they adopted? Okay. The standard story of the Meiji state coming to being is that one of its earliest concerns is with solidity of its national borders, right? So Hokkaido also comes into play here. So there's a concern to make sure that its northern and southern borders are solid. And in part, this is motivated by anxieties with you know European imperialism that they're seeing happening. And so the Meiji state really wants to make sure that Okinawa or the islands that become Okinawa are part of a Japanese realm. Now, the issue here, of course, is that Okinawa has had a long history with China as one of its tribute states. And so this ambiguity was becoming an, an almost, you know, an unbearable ambiguity for Meiji Japan. And so it sought in a way to incorporate the Ryukyu kingdom, what was then the Ryukyu kingdom, into the modern Japanese state. And it begins this in a series of steps that actually only takes place several years after the Meiji Restoration. So unlike the case of Hokkaido, where, you know, by 1869, you've got folks going to Hokkaido and the state is taking active interest in that, the process with what becomes Okinawa actually begins really about 1872, when, you know, the Meiji government suggests to the Ryukyun court that they should send a mission to Tokyo. And, you know, the Ryukyun court is thinking, well, all right, this is kind of like what's happened before. They want us to congratulate them on the new, on the formation of a new government. And so they go and then they're told, the Ryukyuns are told then that they're being converted into what's called Ryukyu Han. And the Ryukyun king is going, is moving from Ryukyu or to be to becoming Hanol, which is you know king of the fief, and so this starts off what's known in Okinawan history, I suppose, as the Ryukyu Shobun, which translates really awkwardly into the Ryukyu disposition, and it's a long process, it's a multi-year process that culminates in 1879 when Okinawa is Okinawa Prefecture is established, the Ryukyun court is abolished, and the Ryukyun king is moved to Tokyo. So that, in a nutshell, is what happens with the Meiji state and Okinawa in terms of its formation. But I think it's really important when we talk about the Meiji state's position vis-a-vis the Ryukyus to remember the fact that there's an earlier history to Japan's relationship with the Ryukyu kingdom, which is that in 1609, Satsuma Han had already invaded the Ryukyu kingdom then, and brought the Ryukyu kingdom into a sort of relationship, a subordinate relationship to Satsuma. So, you know, Satsuma was getting, was being paid, receiving taxes of a kind from the Ryukyu kingdom at this time. So much so that, you know, Takara Kurayoshi calls this, 
he says that the Ryukyu Kingdom by this time had become a foreign polity within the Bakuhan system. So that gives you a sense that you know prior to the Meiji to the Meiji period, Ryukyu was already in in a in a sort of a colonial relationship with the polity of Japan. And so it really raises questions as to what happens in Meiji. And I think it's probably I think it's a little bit more appropriate to think of it as a reconfiguration or a modification of an already existing colonial relationship into a new form of colonialism. And you've written specifically about the city of Shudi, the former capital of the Ryukyu Kingdom, and particularly its castle. Yeah, so the castle features in the story in several ways. One, it's a, re- it's a really symbolic moment because when the Meiji state sends its official to enact the Ryukyu disposition, right, his name is Machida Michiyuki, one of the conditions is that the Ryukyun king is told that he has to leave, he has to hand over Shuri Castle as part of this establishment of Okinawa Prefecture. So, you know, Shuri Castle's, the loss, well, Shuri Castle becomes this really symbolic moment of the not only end of the Ryukyun kingdom, but also the beginning of Okinawa Prefecture. And it's particularly poignant because what happens is that a military garrison gets established there the minute they leave, right? So there were military units in Okinawa prior to this, beginning in 1875. But when the king leaves, the military garrison gets established there. And so you mentioned that there's this embassy that comes from the Ryukyus to Tokyo, and they're being told, well, from now on, you're going to be a Han. I mm-hmm. imagine that must have been quite a shock. You know, Maybe they didn't expect this. And this kind of raises this question of what was the impact of this whole process on the people who were living in the Ryukyus? Well, if we're talking about the time between 1875 and 1879, so right from the moment that they're told that they're now a Han, you know, not surprisingly, these the high officials, and these are the highest officials of the court that have been sent on this mission, they, you know, they freak out a bit. Um, And (laughs) it begins this period of, you know, resistance. There is, I think, one of the things that gets overlooked in a more common retelling of this history, right, in this period, is the extent to which the, the Ryukyun court actually tried to stave off and tried to protect themselves from what they saw as this move by Japan to absorb them into, into Japan. And rightly so. I mean, that was Japan's intention. And so one of the things that the elites did was to reach out not very successfully, but they did try to reach out to European powers to sort of say, hey, you know, we've signed or you've you've approached us with intentions for creating relations uh, before. We're, we're facing the situation now. Can you help us? And this came under criticism, actually, in the newspapers, uh, uh, mainland newspapers uh, criticized the Ryukyus for trying to do this. But I, I think that's so that's one one response, right? This this attempt by uh, Ryukyun, the leaders of the Ryukyun court to sort of try to to stave this off. And of course, they protested as well. They protested to the Meiji government and said, you know, you really can't do this. One of the arguments they used was the relationship with China that the Ryukyu kingdom has is, is really is really important. Um, and, and they used a sort of very paternalistic language to say, you know, China has always sort of been a father to 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 uh, the Ryukyus. So so there's that now. So but for common people, um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's harder to gauge how folks sort of react to, to this. I certainly, um, uh, I'm not, I'm not particularly clear. I mean, I, in in the sense, I've not quite seen, uh, you know, uh, um, common people sort of, you know, standing up and protesting at this time. But um, and that's, I think we can sort of imagine why that would be the case. I mean, all of this is happening, you know, quite quickly. Uh, uh, Especially in the in the latter part of the of the of the of the um, no, let me rephrase this. So, 
I think most of these negotiations were happening between the court and, and the Meiji government. And so I think common people were not, well, they were not part of the conversation in the first place. And I can't really say to what extent they were aware of what was happening. But when the proclamation to uh, establish Okinawa Prefecture happened, it happened in a newspaper. Um, it was published in a newspaper in the, in the early part of April of 1879, right, that Okinawa Prefecture was now was now established. And one of the things I, I've been really curious about and, and tried to cover in this podcast is how does the restoration impact people on the ground level? And so you were talking about it might be kind of hard to pinpoint exactly how this impacts people in the cities of Okinawa. But mm-hmm. you, you mentioned there is a bit of resistance at the court level. Do we see protests, for example? Do we see other types of resistance to this process or any types of evidence of what is actually happening, changes on the ground? Right. I should say that, you know, when I when I said that there wasn't really, uh, I, I haven't seen the sort of uh, protest from common people, this is refers to the period before 1879, right? But after 1879, it's actually quite dramatic. So, you have protests that continue at the elite level. There is a group of elites, they're called the Gangkoha. They continue to appeal to China for its help. Some of them actually leave and flee to China and to sort of, you know, get Chinese help, um, but again, to no avail. Now, after Okinawa Prefecture is set up and you have the, you know, the beginning of Japanese government, there is widespread protests actually on the ground from common people around the issue of taxation. So there is a response in that case, right, where they are protesting the unequal or unfair taxation, or they are protesting what they see as disingenuous or bad things that tax collectors are doing. So there is response in that sense on the ground. Now, this may not be directly related to the Meiji Restoration, but it is, I think, in reaction to the things that come with becoming a prefecture of Japan. And you mentioned that this party is called the Gankoha. So is this literally the stubborn party, the stubborn yeah, ones? I, I, I'm pretty sure that that's the, uh, the, the name. <laughs> they, are, they are called Gankoha. Yes, it, they are the stubborn party. So it's interesting, right, that that's the way it's talked about, that, you know, the, the group of people who refuse, they just refuse to give up. I refuse to give in to, the, to, this, to, this, new, to this new world. And I imagine this is a, a denomination that's cast on them by the state, or, or do they kind of adopt this on their own? Where does this name come from? You know, that's a really great question. Um, I've always actually, I have to, I have to, I have to look into this a little bit. But my sense is that it, it's certainly the way that they're talked about in, in texts, like in, in you know, Zixi, in the standard histories, right? That's that's how they're referred to. And so these protests against taxes, we could say that all around Japan, especially in central Japan, there's all sorts of protests against taxes, against conscription. Mm -hmm. And so we could definitely say that those are acts of resistance to this kind of domineering federal state. Mm. Can we read into these protests a, a resistance to what we might otherwise think of as the colonization of Okinawa? Well, I mean, I think it's an interesting idea. I think there, there, there is an important caveat, though, before we go there, which is that after Okinawa Prefecture is established, the Meiji state decides actually to hold off on important uh, reforms to the social, so social and economic system in Okinawa. Now, 
there are radical changes okay, that take place in terms of education, in terms of conscription. Um, economically, sugar becomes re- receives much encouragement. Uh, you know, for, and there, in other words, there's encouragement for, for folks to grow sugar. But in terms of taxation, the land system and administrative divisions, these are all frozen. So it's a period known as preservation of old customs, Kyukang Onzon. And this essentially goes from 1880, the 1880s all the way to something like 1903, 1904, which is when the land reorganization is completed. So what this means is that for this entire period from the 1880s until 1903 with the land reorganization, people were taxed the same way that they were taxed during the Ryukyu Kingdom, right? So that's an interesting problem, right? Going to the question you just asked, what, what exactly people are responding to? So the taxation system hasn't changed and, and that's what they're protesting. This this unfair taxation that continues to hold basically villages, right? So your tax your tax burden is paid as according to your, uh, the village as a whole is, is responsible for a certain tax burden. And they are protesting that as unfair taxation. They're also protesting cases where, you know, it seems like tax collectors or, or their, their village officials are, you know, doing the wrong thing, right? Collecting too much tax. So in that sense, whether or not you want to talk about that as a protest against the Meiji state, I think, I think, we need a little bit more, we need to discuss that a little bit more. But there's a way this leads back into the conversation, which is that one of the ways that the, the establishment of Okinawa Prefecture is talked about is as a sort of liberation of common people, of, of folks who, particularly peasant, the peasant classes, right? So now they have, they, they feel an ability or they have an ability to protest or to speak back against these things. But again, whether or not this goes into a critique of the Meiji state, uh, I think I think there's room for discussion there. And we mentioned this comparison to Hokkaido before, and mm. and so often the Ryukyus and, and Ainu Moshir get kind of grouped into this these territories that are incorporated by the Meiji state, and then through a process of settler colonialism, the, the mainland Japanese go in and, and even kind of carry out a process of ethnic negation that uh, as David Howell has called it. Do we see a similar process in Okinawa as part of this acquisition? Or is even this comparison faulty in the first place? I think it's challenging to make that comparison. Look, let's be clear. It, it's a problem of, of internal colonization, right? Both of these places become internal colonies of Japan. That That's similar to both Okinawa and Hokkaido. But I do think that the conditions... The way the way that it happened in Okinawa, and the conditions, and by which I mean, you know, what the, the conditions that the Japanese state has to deal with, or, or the kinds of challenges it has to deal with, are actually quite different. So, for instance, there isn't a large scale migration of mainland Japanese people into Okinawa the way that it happened with with Hokkaido. Uh, But that isn't to say there wasn't Japanese business or Japanese people living in Okinawa already. As part of its earlier history, so the history of the Ryukyu Kingdom, I mean, it's a history of much interaction, both culturally and economically. And so you have Japanese business people, commercial interests who are already in Okinawa at the time. So that's already there's that difference. another, Another difference, I think, is so with Hokkaido, as I understand it, in 1869, right, the, the Meiji state actively and consciously sets up institutions, bureaucratic institutions to oversee the colonization of Hokkaido in a way that that doesn't happen for Okinawa, right? So that's a real, and so what happens with Okinawa is you get, you know, governors are sent there and they're meant to do their thing, but there isn't that sort of, the, the level of, in, 
I don't want to say intensity because that would be the wrong would be the wrong message, but I think the approach to colonizing both of these places are quite different. So often the history of the acquisition of Okinawa gets tied in to this 1874 Formosa expedition. You know, yeah. This case where the Yukuan sailors are murdered by indigenous inhabitants of Formosa. And this leads to this kind of diplomatic controversy between China and Japan. And in the process of seeking redress for, for this incident, Japan kind of uses this as an attempt to claim Okinawa, right? So, I mean, in, in the conventional wisdom, these two are very tied to each other. Yeah, I think, no, I think it is, it is an important moment. I mean, let's, let's be clear. I mean, because, and, but I think it's important to sort of understand why it's important. I mean, it's important as a, a performative moment, right, um, for the Meiji state to, to actually publicly say these are our people, or these are Japanese people. So it's important for that. Uh, but I do think that what happens after, before and after that with, you know, this, this gradual, this sort of, if you imagine, right, so from 18, if we go back to this earlier moment, this 1872 moment where they're told that, where, where the Ryukyu kingdom folks are told that they are now Ryukyu Han, I mean, beginning from there, right, and then, and, and the, the, the Formosan expedition stuff is part of this, of this package, but really this slight, this longer process of, uh, that goes from 72 all the way to 79, so it's a seven-year process, more or less, that leads to the end of the Ryukyu kingdom. And I think it's important to look at all of that as well, uh, in addition to what happens with the Formosan expedition. And you're talking about these differences between the incorporation of Okinawa and the incorporation of Hokkaido. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, Hokkaido uh, sets the stage for the later colonial acquisition of Korea. And and some of the things that are tested out Mm -hmm. in Hokkaido are then used in administration of Korea as a colony. Can we say the same thing about Okinawa and Taiwan? I mean, maybe you get drawing these kind of faulty comparisons based on geographic proximity, but is there some similarities there? I think there are obviously similarities. I mean, one of the things that we've learned from all the scholarship that's happened in, uh, you know, in Japanese studies in the last, you know, 10, 20 years is the amount of the, the level of circulation of ideas and the way that, you know, the state learns about what from what it does in one place and how to use it in another place. I think in terms of education, right, the the uh, the setting up of schools, um, uh, making education more accessible to everybody, making making people go to school and learn, uh, you know, in the way that the, the Japanese state wishes for them to learn. These are things that are common to the colonies, right, that we see that. We see education being used in in, in quite similar ways. Uh, conscription is the same thing. But I think in the case of Okinawa and whether or not it becomes a laboratory for right for one of a better word for other sorts of colonialism, I my my personal sense is that you know because of the preservation of old customs or this period where you know there were some of the most important changes that lead to so for instance taxation right to incorporate. Uh, Okinawa into Japan. That is, it's not that that doesn't take place. It just happens. It's just deferred, right? It, it's it's postponed by 15, 20 years. And I think that this period, because of this period of, of postponement of, of these radical reforms, I think Okinawa doesn't become as much of a, a, a an experimental space for colonialism as as compared to somewhere like Hokkaido. I'll give you an example. So for instance, we know that Shinto 
is a, you know, in Shinto, an establishment of Shinto shrines is one way that Japanese state or Meiji state started to try, you know, impose it, its power and, and its its presence in these um, uh, territories, right? Certainly the case for uh, Taiwan and Korea and Hokkaido. Now, the interesting thing about Okinawa is that Okinawa actually lagged behind in all of this. And so in the case of Hokkaido, you had the establishment of big Shinto shrines, okay, that enshrined what we call the Kaitaku Sanjin, the the, uh, the 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 three the three coming of, of of development or or colonization, if you if you'd like to call it that. And this also happened in Taiwan, right? Very soon after Taiwan became a colony, there was establishment of Taiwan Jinja. Same thing, Kaitaku Sanjin get 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 installed there. This doesn't happen in Okinawa. In fact. When Okinawa in, in the 1880s, in the late 1880s, when there was an attempt to sort of try to uh, elevate one of the existing Shinto shrines to become something, you know, similar to one of these shrines, the governor of Okinawa actually used Hokkaido as the example. They said, look, we really need a shrine like what's happened in Hokkaido, right? Uh, so I think there is a difference. So in that sense, uh, it's not quite the sort of experimental ground. Okinawa seems to me to sort of lag behind. It's it's not really a place where the state went and experimented with certain kinds of government techniques or government tools and then took it to other parts of the empire. As a legacy of that, do you think it's fair to say that Okinawa is able to retain somewhat of a unique identity or culture within this larger Japanese state? I think you could, but then, you know, one has to be very careful because the 20s and 30s, once we get out of the Meiji period and into the Taisho and early Showa, then assimilation becomes really sort of more pronounced um, and becomes incredibly obvious. So, for instance, in the 1930s, you have mid-30s, late-30s, you have the famous events with Yanagita Muneyoshi and the Minge folks and the language, the issue of Okinawan language, right? So they want to retain, they, they go to Okinawa and they make the argument for, you know, retaining Okinawan language because they think it's really wonderful. And all, all, all Okinawans across the board are arguing, that, no, we want to be modern, we want to speak Japanese, why, why do you want to keep us, um, you know, un-Japanese? And so I think this question of, your question of, you know, if it's if Okinawan identity is retained because of these different conditions, um, maybe. But I would be careful because I think I would prefer to phrase it as an issue of Okinawan identity is retained in spite of these really serious attempts to assimilate or forced assimilate demands for assimilation and Okinawan attempts to assimilate. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking of, of today. Okinawa does seem to have this special cachet, mm-hmm. right? I, I mean, in I, I keep saying whenever this comes up in the podcast, you know, when I first went to Japan in the 2000s, there was this big boom in Japanese punk music and it was all these Okinawan bands and and there was a kind of Hayati or kind of trend yes. of Okinawan culture. You know, I think you're right. You're absolutely right. There is a particular sort of celebration of Okinawan culture. And it, this is something that Okinawa itself embraces, right? That it, the, And when I say Okinawa, I mean, for instance, the Okinawa. Okinawa Prefecture, right, as a sort of identity for itself. And you see it in tourism literature and so on and so forth, that Okinawa is special because it's it, it sits at the confluence of all these different and diverse influences from all over Asia in a way, and, and that culture takes forms in Okinawa that it doesn't take in the rest of, of mainland Japan, right? I mean, we're familiar with these, right? 
But I also think that this is actually fairly recent. I, I've argued that this it's really very much a post-war thing. Because in the pre-war, because of the demand for assimilation, the demand was for Okinawan Okinawan identity to be downplayed or if not if not um, erased to become Japanese, right? I, I hope it's I, I don't want to give the impression that there wasn't great pressures for assimilation. There were, there absolutely were. And in fact a common example, right, is of the sorts of the price that Okinawan people pay or were willing to pay with suicides in, in the in the end of the of the Battle of Okinawa. I mean I think that speaks to this the power of this demand for assimilation. But I do think that in the post-war there is an attempt by Okinawan intellectuals, by some Okinawan intellectuals and elites, to cast Okinawan culture as this really powerful, diverse thing that makes Okinawa very, very special. And this in part benefited from American occupation, which encouraged the, you know, a strong Ryukyun identity because the hope there was that if Okinawan people were proud of their Ryukyun identity and understood that they weren't always a part of Japan, then there would be fewer demands for reversion to Japan, right? So under that umbrella, in a sense, I think Okinawan identity was celebrated in a way that it wasn't in the pre-war. And what we see now with the continued celebration of Okinawan identity, I think comes in part from this period in the, in the early post-war period. And certainly there's reason for some suspicion, right? I, I mean, there's kind of lingering antipathy from the end of the war, where a, a lot of people in Okinawa felt like the Japanese army had basically abandoned Okinawa to the yes. Americans. And then in the post-war, it was revealed that the Showa emperor had even talked about, well, why don't we just give Okinawa to the Americans? And yes. and the, again, they find felt kind of betrayed. Mm-hmm. And, and then you could say even today with the base issues that keep coming up, Okinawans feel like they're subordinate or being subordinated to the rest of the Japanese state. And, you know, there's a really important way in which that gets expressed. So, you know, I talked earlier about the Ryukyu disposition, right? Ryukyu Shobun. You know, this term actually comes up pretty frequently um, in the sense that folks will talk about the stuff now around bases as being yet another Ryukyu Shobun, hmm. yet another time right, that the Okinawa was somehow disposed of or, or, or treated poorly. So, right, so if we look at the ways that it's, uh, so for instance, the base issue is talked about yet another Ryukyu Shobun, it really raises questions about what people think that first Ryukyu Shobun was, or maybe even the second, depending on whether you count 1609, with the Satsuma invasion in 1609, as the first Ryukyu Shobun or not. So I think that's really revealing, right, about how folks think of not only their place within the Japanese nation state today, but what 1879 might have meant to them as well. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.